And if I haven't had a chance to, to meet you, would love an opportunity to do so after the service. Um, two, two just other announcements I, I want to make. Um, if you've been um, visiting us and are interested in joining, our next member's standing is October 16th. And if you have questions about why we do, why, why, why would you join a church or are interested in, in being a part of what Wallace is, is doing in College Park, I'd love to talk with you about that. Um, there are, our leadership would like to talk to, with you about that as well. But just want to put that out in front of you that we will have an opportunity to receive new members on October 16th. And if you're interested in that, let me know. Also, if you have children that ha- are maybe at a place in their life where they're ready to become communion members, I want to remind our members about that as well. Let's uh, get them interviewed. And um, both of those processes are joys of our leadership to hear of, of God's work in the lives of people. And so that is not a, a um, I should say, a, a strenuous interview. It is a joy to meet with individuals and hear of, of, of the Lord's work. And so I just wanted to remind us of that and hope that that's something that um, if that interests you, you can come find me after the service and we can talk more about it. Okay, we are in the book of Ephesians and we're, we're on part two of our first section here in verses 3 to 14. And before I read this, just want to remind us what we talked about last week. Uh, one, in the Greek, this is all one run-on sentence. And Paul is in prison when he wrote this letter. And um, this is just sort of the overflow of his heart as to what he thinks of when he thinks about the gospel and and who God is. And so we looked at that last week as uh, the the blesser uh, who is God and how this is really praise for Paul. And as we look at what he's done, hopefully that same perspective draws us to praise as well. And we looked at uh, how we should praise God for his plan and his purpose last week, and then this week we're going to look at praising God for his promises, which are his blessings. And that's, that's what we'll turn our, our attention to um, this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Ephesians, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. 
We pray now that you would do a miracle, and by a miracle that you would soften our hearts, that we may receive your word as good soil receives a seed and produces a fruit, that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm jumping right in with my outline. No fun story at the beginning. I apologize. But this is part two, so we've got to move on. And I'm just going to say this because I feel like I've got to say it a hundred times throughout the sermon. There's so much in this text, as you can tell. Please, please let this be an invitation to ask further questions about some of the things that we are going to talk about this morning. Can't get it all done in the next two hours that we're going to have together. That's a joke. Just making sure you're awake. Um, but this is, there's, it's just, there's so much. And we will carry a lot of these things with us as we continue in the letter. But an outline that's not in your bulletin, um, we'll look at why the blessings are the blessings for Paul. We've got to do that first. Then we'll look at the blessings. And then we'll finish with the heart of the blessings. So why the blessings are the blessings for Paul, are blessings for Paul. We'll look at the blessings. And then why, or sorry, the heart of the blessings, Okay. So let's do the first one, why the blessings are blessings for Paul. And maybe I will start with this story as sort of uh, as we begin this. Um, over, over the past decade, I've, I've been on the periphery of the uh, subculture that is the half marathon, marathon running uh, culture. You, you know who you are if you do these things. I don't do these things. Um, I, I just watch. Um, I don't even do that, actually. sleep through a lot of them. Ada does this. And so we've gone from places to places where she's run a half marathon, even a marathon. Sorry to put you on the spot. Um, But one of the things I've noticed being sort of this observer is uh, there's a subculture here, right? And it's all, the whole of people's lives are sort of centered, focused on the the training, the eating, uh, getting, doing the race and all that. And again, as strictly an observer, um, going to some of these events, you also notice that there's something that, that, that this subculture really kind of, you know, gets excited about as well, and that's the swag. Um, and if you don't know what swag is, it's stuff we all get. Um, and so, you know, depending on what race you sign up for, I mean, you get some really nice stuff. You get some new shoes, uh, new running gear. Um, depending on who's sponsoring the race, you might get bags or just products that they make. And it's just sort of this nice little throw-in, right? A cherry on top of, of all the work you've done to put into this and, and the race. You're really there for the race. But it's just nice to, to think about the little extras that you might get for showing up and for doing this. Um, when we come to the blessings here for Paul, and I, and I, I start here because this, this may not be everyone's tendency, but it, but it can be our tendency uh, to see these blessings that we read here um, as just extras, sort of things that are thrown in, right? That, that maybe we're, we're, we're happy to get those things, um, but, you know, the, the real part here is something else. And if I could do anything before we talk about the blessings, it's those, that is the main thing, as we'll see. Uh, it, they aren't extras, and they aren't throw-ins. And, and the only way that Paul can really begin uh, both in his own life, but I would say to us as he writes this, to get us to not see these blessings as extras or throw-ins, is to understand the condition of our own lives upon receiving these blessings. 
This is what makes the blessings blessings for Paul. And to do that, we have to peek ahead to chapter 2. And I want you to come with me as we do that. I'm going to read for us chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But this is all in Paul's mind as he speaks and says what I just read for us for our scripture reading this morning. And if this doesn't sink into our hearts, if we don't grab hold of this in the sense that this is the condition of all of us spiritually before we receive these blessings, then they won't actually be blessings to us. They'll be extras to the work that we've done to get ourselves there. So let me, let me just peek over here quickly. It's, it's cheating, I know, we're going ahead, but just bear with me. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? Now, again, we're going to cover this in more detail in a few weeks. But verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This, this is the context for Paul of the blessings. And again, these cannot be blessings to us unless we dive into this and get this. What that word dead means is just what it says. Dead, lifeless, has physical and uh, spiritual connotations to it. Right? It is a car without a battery, as I heard this week. It will not go. That's what he means when he says this. And for Paul, this is true of everyone in the spiritual sense because of Adam and Eve. Big conversation we need to have about that. We can have it over coffee. But this is what we are born into because of sin. And it's what leads Paul to say that none is righteous. This is in Romans 3. He's quoting Psalm 14. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And I've got to tell you right up front, when I first came into contact with it, that was extremely offensive to me. And I had big problems with this. How dare the Bible say this? But let me just hold on to that for a second, because what Paul is getting at, and what I had to come to terms with, and what you have to come to terms with, is that if I am really dead, which is what the text says, that unless something comes in and restarts me, what we call regeneration, or gives me life, nothing's going to change with me. Now, wherever you are with that, this is what the text is saying. So stay with me. Hold your questions. We can talk about them later. But stay with me because this is so important to getting at the heart of what Paul wants to say. But I think it's also important to remind us again of, of, of who is saying this, and that's Paul, and remembering his own testimony. Right? He was a Jew of Jew. He was a Pharisee. What was he doing before Christ regenerated him, gave him new life to his dead heart? He was on the road to go to Damascus to get permission to persecute Christians. Had already been and taken part of persecuting Christians, killing them. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. His life is the billboard, if you will, for what this looks like. But you don't have to go around killing people to, to have evidence in your life that you're dead. 
spiritually speaking. So I'll speak for myself here. I know where I would be if God didn't intervene. And this is one of the graces uh, that he gives us, that we get glimpses right into the bottomless pit of, of despair in our lives that we would pursue because one of the things that sin does to us is it makes us self-centered. In other words, I love me some me. And as much as God has worked in my life and has done amazing things, you can go ask Ada, she'll confirm that. I love me some me. And if I know anything about the human condition and nature in of itself, I'm sure there's a part of that that's true for you as well. I'll ask your spouse or your parent or your best friend. We get this, right? This is, this is part of being human, as we say, but I'm going to say, no, 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 this is part of the fall. This is what it means when Paul says you are dead in your trespasses. And why this is important is that unless God does something to us, we remain in that state. This is the context and foundation for all that Paul has just unloaded and said, because guess what, guys? God has not left you in that state. And this now gets us to the blessings. I'm trying to skip ahead here for time's sake, but that is the context for us. It is the context. The Bible says that God will reveal himself to those who ask. So mind you that. But we start with the reality that we didn't want any of this. And because that's true, this is where we, where we were headed, as the Bible says, towards death itself. But then look at verse 4 of chapter 2. It's one of those wonderful Best two words in Scripture, but God. But God. But God what? Let's get to the blessings, okay? We'll return to chapter 2 in a few weeks. Here are the blessings as it pertains to verses 3 to 14. Election, adoption, and then being united to Christ or having all things under him. So look at this first one. Election, and we might think of this as a blessing of the past. So look at verses four to five of chapter one. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Now, as I've said before, I remember exactly where I was when I heard these words, and I was in uh, college actually, uh, in a Bible study with uh, campus ministry going over this thing called election. I'd never heard it before in my life. Um, and I had some major problems with it. But it's there, and it's our practice not to avoid this, but to actually go right at it, because this is our text. This is God's word for us today. So let's look at this. Both of these words, to, to choose or predestine, just to get into the grammar, are aorist. In the aorist tense, which means that they describe an action of God that he has done that's already been taken place. It's like taking a picture of something. There it is. It's in the past. It is not ongoing in the sense that, well, maybe he is continuing to choose people. Paul is saying he has chosen a people. He has predestined a people. It's done. Now, first, why did God choose us? Why is election even necessary? Because we were dead. This is Paul's logic. That's the simple of it. Because we were dead. We were lifeless. Again, it was, it was never going to, we were never going to choose Christ. 
Paul was never going to stop himself on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden decide, I think I want to follow Jesus. This is what he's saying. Our spiritual hearts were unresponsive to him the way my kids are unresponsive to me and Ada when they're watching TV and we've asked five times to turn off the TV, come eat dinner, are your clothes laid out? Dead. Nothing. This is why election is necessary. This is why it's a blessing for Paul, not a weapon. No one comes into this world with a heart that responds to God. We were dead and we need a new life to be put in us, which is what election is all about. Now, did God choose the ones who chose him? This is a a natural question that many of us might have. In other words, did God, being God, knowing and seeing all things, look into the future at the foundations of the world and see those who are willing to choose him, and then those are the ones that he predestined or he elected? And the answer is no. And why? Because they were dead. Again, no one, according to Scripture, chooses God. Remember, it's by grace that you have been saved, that he goes on to say, so that no one may boast. If God chooses you because he looked into the future and elected those who had the moral capacity to choose God, then you and I would have a reason to boast. We would have a reason to say, look what I did. And maybe if you're good enough and if you have enough faith, you can do it just like me. That is never a part of the economy of God. Because if we have reason to boast, then we have reason to share in his glory. And no one shares in his glory. This is why if we boast, we boast in Christ. That's what Paul will go on to say. So why does God elect or choose anyone? Which is really the better question of election, right? Not why does God choose some and not others, which I am so sympathetic to this question and would love to talk with you about it, by the way, if, if this is your question. And just know that. I'm, I'm moving along here just for the sake of time. The better question, though, is why does God choose anyone? In fact, you know, as we get into the scriptures, as we look at the Old Testament, for example, the nation of Israel had this very question. And as it turns out, one huge example of election that never really occurred to me is Israel themselves. God chose them, right? They were his chosen people. He didn't choose the Egyptians. He didn't choose the Philistines. He didn't choose the Babylonians. He didn't choose the Americans, right? To give himself to and his word and his sacrificial system, he chose Israel to carry out his mission and purposes in the Old Testament, which all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But why did he choose Israel? And this is where we've got to look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. We read this over the Labor Day retreat. Highlight it in your Bibles. Listen to this. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people from his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why, why did God choose Israel? Is it because they were the best? Is it because they were the strongest, wealthiest, prettiest? No. Verse 8, because the Lord loves you, is what the text says. This is the blessing. When we talk about election and we talk about predestination, we must first understand that the Bible uses this word as a blessing. It is a gift. Something out of nowhere that was undeserved. As Brian Chapel writes, he says, predestination is meant to bless believers' hearts. It is not meant for endless argument. It is not an excuse to not evangelize. It is our basis of comfort when we face the limitations of our actions, will, and choices. So come back with me to Paul's audience. How would they be hearing this? As we've talked a lot about his audience, it's very important as we get into the letter. And we talked about his audience being primarily uh, Gentile converts, but also Jewish converts as well. And what's going on throughout the whole New Testament as the church is being established is you have Jews who have been a part of this club in one sense since the beginning you know, of time are now converted and they're still bringing their Jewishness into the party. Then there are these Gentiles, though, who didn't have anything to do with this. And now all of a sudden, by faith in Christ, are now in the club, right? They're, they belong. And if we could just sort of sit in the shoes of those Gentile Christians, there's a sense in which, okay, how do I know I'm really supposed to be here? I mean, look at those Jewish converts, right? They, their family line lit, lit, you know, ran all the way up here. Um, they're, 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 they're good people, they tithe, they obey, right? I was worshiping over at the temple of Artemis two weeks ago. I'm not going to tell you what else I was doing over there, by the way. But now all of a sudden, this is what's happened. How do I know that I'm really in this place? I chose you. I chose you. Let Deuteronomy 7 be yours too, is what Paul is saying, because it is. Right? This, is, this is the comfort. Right? This is how election is always used. It's to encourage and to bring comfort to the assurance of our salvation. But as comfort and as encouragement to the church, election in the Bible, and as it was for Israel, intended anyways, should always also lead us into humility and gratitude for our lives. If Paul's words in Ephesians here on the blessing of election is not growing humility in you towards others, then you have missed the blessing completely. It's, not, it's one of the purposes of Deuteronomy 7 is Israel, you know, do not think that you are better. And it's the same for the church as well. Humility and gratitude are the outcomes of understanding this truth of Scripture, which then becomes the engine, if you will, for all service and outreach, as is true humility and gratitude lead to the best kind of evangelism that there is. For sure, we are left with more questions, but we must move on. Election and predestination serve primarily to encourage and bring comfort to the assurance of our salvation, and it is necessary according to Paul, because we were dead. 
unless God did something. And he did. And he chose you. Let that be comfort for your hearts. Well, let's move on to the next blessing. Is it, did God just choose us for the sake of choosing us? No, Paul says he chose you for the sake of adoption. And so if you think about election being the past blessing, adoption is the present blessing. The whole purpose is that you be brought into his family. Verse 5 there. He predestined us to be sons and daughters. As I've said before, we are always saved from something to something. We're never just saved from something and then God says, go on with your merry life. You are either his or you're somebody else's. And when God chooses us, he, he saves us from something to himself, which is what adoption is. This means that with God as our father and Christ as your brother, then you receive, by virtue of being in the family, the same rights and benefits as the son from the father. Think about that for a second. This is how this works. This is the union with Christ that we talk about. By virtue of adoption, you receive the same rights as the son to the father. Which means what belongs to Christ belongs to you. Likewise, then, those who are adopted are redeemed, the text says, and are forgiven of their sins and trespasses. This is verse 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Adoption, friends, leads to redemption and forgiveness. This is the, pl- the present blessing, and this is something you have right now. Right now. Redemption is best understood in this day and age regarding slavery. This is exactly how his audience's ears would hear this. Now, slavery was a bit different than the way that we understand slavery in America. Slavery here, often, but not always, was something you entered into in order to pay off a debt you owed. You might call it indentured slavery. It was debt bondage. So, for example, you might enter into an agreement with someone in this day whom you owed money to for various reasons, and you would say, I will work for you for two years to work this, you know, without pay, to work off that debt. Or, hey, you know, I would like to leave here, and you're going to this far off place. Will you take on the expense of including me in your travels, feeding me, putting me on your ship, whatever it is, and we will go to this place, and I will work for you for a year to pay that off, and then I'm free. That's how that worked. Now, of course, if you, if you couldn't pay your debt, you were enslaved forever. You didn't get out of that slavery. And this would be common again, common knowledge to the Ephesians here. The only way, though, to be set free is if somebody, what? Redeemed you, which means they, they bought you back. And Paul is reminding them that, one, you were dead and couldn't pay, but two, someone had paid your debt or redeemed you. Someone else had done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And what what has redeemed them? What has paid their debt? Verse 7, look at it. It's the blood of Jesus. Calvary. It is the blood of Jesus that redeems you. And why? Because blood is the only thing that could cover the cost, the debt, as it were, that you owe. Jesus' blood was and is that valuable With this redemption, you also have forgiveness of sins for your trespasses. And this means by virtue of being adopted into the family, into Christ, your debt is not only paid, 
but you acquire his riches as well. A friend of mine who had taken out many loans in college and in graduate school, upon graduating from grad school, had debt well into six figures. And there was a lot of question as to how he was going to get out of this. Um, But he was also engaged uh, to a girl. And uh, after his graduation from graduate school, they were going to get married. Um, And it just so happened that for him, this girl um, had a trust fund. Yay, trust funds. Um, And so they got married, and the day they got married, they were able to pay off that debt. Now, that's a lot of money. Uh, Just for the sake of the knowledge I have of this trust, it didn't put a dent in it. Right? But this was now his. And all of his baggage, as it were, all of his debt was completely wiped clean. Now, that is, that is part of redemption, part of forgiveness, as Paul's talking about it. But that is not adoption. Adoption is you not only have that cleaned, you know, clean slate, you are now heirs to that fund. Now, you don't have a trust fund in general. I don't have a trust fund. But we have something better. Even if you do, you've got something better. And what is it? It's Jesus' blood for Paul. There is nothing, nothing more valuable, more, more rich, if you will, than this. This is what pays for everything. This is what wipes the slate clean. This is what gives you this inheritance that Paul speaks of later. And see, Paul is laying this foundation right here in these first verses that he will build upon later as it pertains to how Christians should also live, right? So all of this is foundational. It's grace because this is how we grow. And I want to peek ahead just a little bit, right? These blessings, especially the blessing of adoption and all of its implications as being a part of God's family, that directly affects you today. Just as it directly affected my friend as soon as he was married, as soon as he was, you know, brought into that family, and as soon as he was able to take use of the means of the riches of that family, do you think that that did or did not have an effect on him that day? Huge effect on him. And this is Paul's point, but unless we start here, then we won't know how it is that we're supposed to grow and change. And I liken this to the anchor and engine, if you will, of the Christian life, right? Understanding that you were dead, right? The the blessing of election, Uh, being united to Christ by faith, it is coming into his family. That is the anchor for you. And as Paul will tell us here in a second, we we have a down payment confirming this in the Holy Spirit. But that is the anchor, but it's also the engine in which we go and pursue the Christian life. You are free of this debt, but you are also made new by the Spirit. And this is of grace. And this is what sends you into this direction to, as John Stott says, take on and develop the family likeness. You are a part of God's family. That has massive implications for how you think of yourself, what you do, how you live. As John Stott writes, it is unthinkable that we should enjoy a relationship with God as his children without accepting the obligation to imitate our father and develop the family likeness. Again, the last three chapters of this letter, 
are all about that. Matter of fact, you won't hear Paul give you one uh, imperative until chapter 4. And we call that the grammar of the gospel. It's grace first, right? It's indicative first, imperative second. This is the anchor and this is the engine for the Christian life. And as I touched on briefly, he goes so far to tell us that even in the midst of that, this reality that you have right now by being adopted into God's family, you experience that right now. And God has given you what he says is a down payment, a seal to confirm that. And it's the Holy Spirit. And there's much discussion. This is in 13 and 14. We didn't get at this last week, and I'm sliding it in here because we just got to touch on it. But this is, this is amazing, right? Now, when we read this, the question arises, is, is this sealing something the Holy Spirit does, or is the Holy Spirit himself who is the seal? And it's the latter. It's the latter. The Holy Spirit is the seal. Sinclair Ferguson writes, his presence in our life is itself God's assurance that every spiritual blessing will be ours. That's your anchor, and that's your engine confirmation of the grace of the family that you belong to. Well, what are the marks of this presence, right? How do I know that the Spirit is in me? Might be your question this morning. A lot of things. Belief. As as a mustard seed, right? If you're just inching towards, like, I I think I can believe this. That could be the Spirit's, like, evidence of the Spirit's work in you. But certainly, any belief in Jesus Christ. Conviction. Conviction. Any sense of conviction over sin and guilt and rebellion in your heart towards God is not a mark of shame upon you at this point. It is a mark of the reality that you have the Spirit in you. So praise God for that, which then leads to repentance, one of the wonderful gifts that he gives the church. Maybe you have a desire to change something in your life and you're not happy with it. Here's the thing. Dead people don't care about that stuff as it pertains to God. Coming back to the context for Paul. So be encouraged. This is what the Spirit is doing. Maybe it's seeing and understanding the depths of your sin and grieving that, right? Paul's going to talk about in chapter 4. Don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit's work in your life. These are all ways that we begin to see this is how the Spirit's presence is marked in our life. Treasuring grace all the more and seeing grace as God's gift for change is a mark that the Holy Spirit has sealed you and is the down payment of what God has promised you in Christ. There's much more to say about that, but these are the blessings, and we're going to carry these with us as we head further into this letter. So God chose the Christians in Ephesus before the foundation of the world so that in Christ they might be sons and daughters, that's adoption, And as sons and daughters, they have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Can you begin to see what has gotten Paul so riled up? Can you begin to see why this is praise? Let me give you one more thing, and then we'll leave. I want to look at the heart of this blessing. I want to go back to verse 8. If you'll look at it with me, backing up to 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. Commentators struggle with this last part. Is Paul saying God lavishes upon us wisdom and insight? Sort of like redemption and forgiveness in the verse before. 
wisdom then and insight are ours? Or does God lavish us with grace through his wisdom and insight? And I, I take the latter. I take the latter given many, many factors in the text here. But this is, this is God lavishes his grace upon us with all wisdom and insight upon your life, upon his plan and his purposes. Yes, God gives us wisdom and understanding, but the way Paul words this as opposed to other places when talking about wisdom, that this is God's wisdom and insight, his will. In other words, despite his insight into the lives of these Christians in Ephesus, God in his wisdom lavishes grace upon them that they might have the fullness of adoption and all its benefits. Think about that. As one commentary puts it, in God's wisdom, he knows more about the nature and horror of our trespasses than I do. And he is wise enough to know, that, that, to know what, we will, what will be needed to compensate for that wrong. And he understands that my trespasses will require the blood of his own son to cancel my debt. And still, and still, he redeems me and remits me, remits my sin so that I have Christ's unrighteousness to my credit. One quick illustration to bring that home. In my study of this, it reminded me of a, of a, of a family that we knew who adopted a, a child from overseas. And when adopting this child, it came from a, a place that the majority of these babies, more than likely, were going to grow up with fetal alcohol syndrome. And if you don't know what that is, that, that is just a, a defect uh, that, that shortchanges the brain's development because while the baby was in utero, the mother either was an alcoholic, drank a lot of alcohol, maybe drugs were involved, and it shortchanged the development of the growth of that baby. And the way that develops when that baby is born is, is it's, it's, it's a very chaotic situation to be a parent for, with. Maybe you know some people who have done that and adopted children, and, and they've, they've had that. And, and, and we, we, we've known several families. We've been in the privilege. We've had the privilege of knowing several families who have done that. And it's a nightmare if you've ever looked upon this. You know, whatever the romantic stories of, of adoption, and there are many, adoption's hard. But one of the things that, 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 that was true for this family is as they were about to, you know, adopt this child, they were told, hey, these are the implications of this. This is what, this is what more than likely is going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to your family. If, if this child has fetal alcohol syndrome, and we have more than enough reason to believe that it will, these are the consequences that you're going to take on at your own expense. Did that stop them from doing this? No. This is Paul's point. God has looked at you and all of his wisdom and understanding. He's seen the mess that your heart, like the heartache that it's going to cost him, the trouble that it's going to bring, the cost of his own son to secure you, to redeem you from the life that you lived, to bring you into his family. He's looked at all of that, the stuff that you know and the stuff that you're, 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 you're too afraid to even think about right now and the stuff that you don't have any clue about. He looked at all of it and he said, I want you. That is the heart 
of the blessing. Do you believe that? In your election, in your adoption, in the Holy Spirit being given to you to, to make sure you get home. That this God is willing to look upon you, see what it takes, what it'll cost, and say, I want him. I want him. What would that do for you? Would that cause us to praise the Lord? Would it cause us to move closer and further in to the family of God and take on the family likeness? I think it would, and I think that's Paul's point. Let me end there and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and it's incredible, and it's sometimes hard to believe that you would look upon us, knowing our stories, knowing the costs, and that none of that would deter you from us. And so I pray that this would be the forefront of our, of our hearts and our lives as we think about the blessings that you've given us and that those blessings, as Paul says that they are, would truly become blessings to us and not extras or sort of throw-ins for some, something else. That this would be the heart of why it is that we follow and serve you. We thank you for this. We pray that you would continue to work in our lives through it for God's glory, for Jesus' glory, we pray. Amen.